Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I'm Aaron Schweitzer, your host, along with Central Oregon's most free-ranging reporter, Laurel Bronze. This podcast is powered by The Source Weekly, Ben's locally-owned newspaper. Our guest today is Kate O'Hagan, co-chair of the Deschutes Cultural Coalition. She is a graduate from Lewis and Clark College with a degree in art and a secondary teaching certification in art. A mixed-media installation artist and cellist aspiring to earn her MFA after the virus dissipates. <laughs> uh, she's the executive director of, or has been, was the executive director of Art Central for 23 years. Before that, she worked for the Oregon Symphony, Portland Art Museum, and the Corcoran Museum in Washington, D.C. After moving to Central Oregon in the early 90s, she ran a cattle farm outside of Madras for four years and then ran the Mirapon Gallery and helped save that building as well, the Goodwillie Allen Rademacher House, which some now know as The Commons. Kate, thanks for joining us. A pleasure, thank you. Um, maybe we could start by just telling us a little about your family's history in Oregon and how you became interested in the arts. Well, as it works out, uh, when I discovered that OSU was having its uh, 100th anniversary, I recalled that my great-grandfather had uh, gone to OSU. Turns out he was a first graduate in the first graduating class of OSU. Wow. Yeah, so uh, that, that was something. you <laughs> how incredibly educated my family is. And... Um, my grandfather on that side, his son, uh, became uh, an illustrator for the Oregonian, I believe, at the time. But it was a, um, you know, he was a political cartoonist. Uh, but to make money, he later became a very successful uh, corporate attorney. But he was a very accomplished illustrator. And my mother, uh, his daughter, uh, got her MFA from um, the Chicago Art Institute and advanced degrees in painting from um, Oregon, uh, University of Oregon. So I, that's, and on my father's side, my grandfather was a cellist. On both sides, my grandparents and my mother were teachers. So it's just in my blood. And um, that's all I can say. It's your genetics. Yeah, evidently. Yeah. <laughs> For better or worse, you know. Right. right. Um, and then... How did you personally become interested in the arts? I mean, aside from it being around you as a child. I had spent a time when I was at Lewis and Clark overseas uh, in Japan as part of an overseas study program. And when I came back, I, I realized that I hadn't picked a major. And so <laughs> I had never taken an art class. I had been immersed in cello pretty much until that point. Um, so I, I just decided to jump in and then I also got my uh, teaching certificate then, which has expired by the way, a long time ago. <laughs> um, so, but then in order to really survive, uh, because the at, arts education was already beginning to go downhill in the seventies in uh, support in the schools and, uh, there were no teaching jobs. So I hopped into working in administration and museums in the education department and later in communication and uh, then moved to the symphony, which was another logical move since I had a music background and became their director of marketing. So I, I just immersed myself in that whole world and I worked from ranges, organizations ranging from very, very small 
grassroots to very, very large and, and significant. Moving to central, um, the much larger organizations into the more grassroots organizations. Yeah. One of the, um, I know one of the things I'm hoping listeners still remember the Mirror Pond Gallery and, and what the uh, commons used to look like when it had art throughout. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk about how that um, project of saving that um, building and getting the gallery in there and that moves over there. How did that happen? Give us a small history lesson. <laughs> well, I arrived on the scene after that particular building had been saved and moved by a group of concerned citizens. That was back at the in the day when they were trying to add more parking to downtown Bend, which is, uh, according to our local population, always a problem. Right. And counters um, wanted to get rid of that building, and I think that it was almost a, it was a midnight save. Chris Reese, who was a dedicated volunteer at that point, got wind that the building was going to be torn down and uh, raised a big protest at City Hall. And um, the downtowners at that time, or the downtown association, were very upset because that meant that they would sacrifice 14 parking spaces. So it was kind of a, a, a contentious uh, in the beginning. Uh, but then the, the house was moved and placed in its uh, current location. And as was discovered in this process, it was, it was the home of Ben's first mayor. So it was a, a lot older. It was the 1907 structure. Uh, than people thought. And it was a really a lot more historically significant. It is a very charming example architecture. And uh, so then the, what was the, uh, pre the pre precedent or the precedent, or if that's a word even, of Arts Central was the Central Oregon Arts Association. And that's the group that I was brought on uh, by to run the Mirror Pond Gallery and then uh, create uh, an arts and culture council and um, move on from there. But that's how that started. An arts group came in right after the concerned citizens saved the structure. The nonprofit arts group came in and started raising money to sustain it. There was no money to pay me. So from the ranch, I had six Red Angus purebred yearlings that I sold and uh, for $12,000. And I lived on that in order to run um, the gallery for free for as long as I could possibly hold out. <laughs> so, so it really is grassroots organization <laughs> founded by cows. Grass fed. <laughs> grass fed. A grass fed organization. Very good, Erin. <laughs> so um, in terms of Art Central, you were there for two, more than two decades. I'm sure there's so many stories to tell, but what would, what's your main takeaway? Like, what did you learn about the Central Oregon arts and culture scene through that experience? Well, I think there was a always been a great deal of enthusiasm for the arts in this area and um, this is going to be the good news and maybe needs work uh, news. Um, the gallery was very popular in the beginning and it launched the careers of a, a number of artists who really do who've gone on to be 
successful in their field and spawned really the Tumalo Art Company and then later the Red Chair Gallery. And at the same time, we saw many galleries in Bend go by the wayside, particularly during the recession. Uh, there at one time when the Gallery Association, which we were part of, started uh, back in the day in the early 90s, um, God, we were like 15 galleries and it's really thinned out from, from that. Um, so a lot of individual artists wanted, however, to remain pretty much as hobbyists. And so we see that as in terms of a strata of accomplishment, and this goes out throughout the arts in Central Oregon. Um, we see a few people at the top who are highly accomplished and sell outside the market. And then in the arts more broadly, that's, that's true too. Um, it's very difficult for this area to attract arts people, arts professionals who prefer to be in the more urban environment because that is where their people are. That is where the work is. That is uh, where um, perhaps a higher, even more academic or more sophisticated level of arts lives largely in urban environments. Also, we're not diverse at all. Uh, so given our low diversity, we're not necessarily attracting that, um, what I would call a highly functional, highly sophisticated caliber of arts and culture types. That said, though, at the grassroots level, there's always been a, an incredible amount of activity and saw the birth back in the heyday of uh, real estate. You know, Ben Film was started by real estate people and then uh, managed to, has managed to survive. You have the Central Oregon Symphony, which I was honored to play in for a while, um, you know, that are really supported by um, the college as well, and that's how they survive. I do notice that because a lot of arts organizations are started by people who care a lot but don't necessarily know, are not administration professionals and don't know uh, the art, um, uh, art and science, I guess, of grant writing and things like that and uh, board development and nonprofit law, nonprofit ethics, um, sometimes they struggle. Uh, and there's, we're leaving a lot of money on the table here in Central Oregon for support of arts and culture as a result. So in terms of future leadership, that's another topic, but um, I have some ideas about how that can evolve so that we have a broader, let's say deeper strata in arts activities from the wonderful creatives that work out of their garage. Uh, <laughs> To, to people who are functioning at a, a more regional, statewide, you know, national, international level. Um, hey, what, what do you think needs to happen to, to going to the things you think? What do you think needs to happen to keep arts and culture thriving in a community like ours? What, what are the next steps that need to happen to, to bring that, not just bring the diversity, but also to bring the funding and the... Um, you know, the place for these things to live. We have to be smarter and I think we have to get beyond a lot of what happens in some arts environments uh, because of the nature of arts boards to a certain extent and the people who are attracted to some areas of the arts. Uh, you get a lot of territorial squabbles and we've got that going on here and it really is a complete waste of time, I think. And so, 
um, and that has to do with a perceived lack of funding. Uh, but there hasn't been any really agreed upon um, uh, unified uh, plan for the region that everyone can get on board with to create uh, a body, if you will, who can help guide um, what we do here. And I really think that that is not going to come about necessarily from the grassroots side of things that I thought we were going to try to create before. Where I have arrived at this moment is that we have an incredibly strong library with incredibly strong leadership and they're in the process of expanding. We have a very strong, strong leadership at the High Desert Museum and they're talking about expanding into more arts and an arts museum type uh, physical expansion. We also have the Oregon State University, which has continued to expand in this area. And so let's call that just an initial triumvirate. There are other agencies uh, that could be involved as well in economic development. But I think that the leadership of the future is going to be coming from those, that level of arts, culture, intellectual, um, those, those thinkers that are involved and responsible for and have proven themselves as experienced and respected leaders in their field are the ones who are in a position now, I think, to come together to strategize how to bring all of us up. And instead of little people popping up and said, look at us, look at us, I think it's just not going to work and we're not gonna be taken seriously and we're not gonna raise the level of funding that we need, that we can do if we all come together. Um, unless we have that higher level um, thinking. Yeah, I don't think it, I don't think it's any coincidence the three organizations that you're naming are all three organizations that are good in their own respective ways at uh, maintaining their funding, raising, you know, the kind of large amounts of grant dollars, government dollars, fun funder dollars that make those kind of things possible. I think also, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of attention talking to, you know, paid to spaces for artists to work. And that is very important. However, if we remain at that level, if that's the level of concern that we're always trying to address, we are just always going to be chasing the problem. And I think we need to get out of that thinking. And I think that uh, it's only going to happen, as I said, uh, by higher level thinkers coming together. So one funding source that gets a lot of attention is the cultural tourism grants from Visit Bend, which are obviously focused on getting people to come here and stay in hotels. Um, so some people might criticize the art scene here as being too tourism focused and you know too many landscape paintings, not enough experimenting, things like that. So what is your thoughts on creative authenticity and that tension, that challenge in a town that is so focused on tourism marketing and getting money from visitors? I think in um, the state, because of the statutes, uh, the way that they are written and the influence that the lodging industry had on the statutes and the limitations that were put on the, on the funding uh, distribution through tourism, 
um, you know, that's, that's a restriction uh, at the state level. It's not, that, it's not the case in other states that the funding for arts and culture is more, can be more liberally distributed as it is understood that cultural tourism at higher levels and funding for starting arts festivals and major sculpture installations and all of that are, are legitimate um, investments that can be made from tourism. Here we're a little more restricted and that restriction has been fiercely defended uh, on the local level. So it is really fantastic that the citizenry um, in, in the Bend area voted to uh, allocate some funding for tourism, uh, arts and tourism funding. So that's that's good. The restrict on that funding to increase heads and visible organizations can benefit from it. As far as um, the, how that influences the level of arts that we're offering here, um, towns like this will always have a lot of landscape paintings. That's what, you know, and ceramics with mountains on them and things like that, because that's what a lot of people want to take away when they go home. And a lot of those pieces are very affordable. And when you have people who are just not necessarily investing in a strategic way personally for, for arts, they're just kind of wandering around and finding things that are pretty. You know, there's always going to be a market for that. And if you go to other places like the beach, you know, that's, that's what you're going to see a lot of. Um, like let's say the more urban areas, Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, LA and on, uh, you're going to have more alternatives to that. Um, I, I do think the funding for the Bend Cultural Tourism Fund is, is potentially hugely significant and I hope it does grow and if there's any way that it can be more thoughtfully applied to, I'm not quite sure how we get a, how we deal with the statute limitation, um, but a little more broad application, more thoughtful application, and maybe a little more um, emphasis on the catalyst aspect of it, uh, using some of that money to uh, strategize uh, a larger uh, festival that can be, that is arts, really high arts focused, that can be a true beacon, because it's these beacons that do call in uh, a lot of higher level of curiosity, just not, um, your pedestrian uh, you, uh, event attendee, let's just say, but more people who are curious about um, a higher level. Let's just be honest. I, you know, I, I fear that I will be called out as a snob for continuing to use the word sophisticated, but I just don't know <laughs> <laughs> how else to cut it. <laughs> Kate, maybe um, Let's discuss the Deschutes Cultural Coalition. I, I'm not sure that all of our listeners know the, what that organization does, but you, you recently did quite a bit with the Oregon Cultural Tourism Fund or Oregon Cultural Trust. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about the organization we're working with now. Deschutes Cultural Coalition was one of 45 cultural coalitions founded in around 2000 by the state of Oregon. Um, then, uh, Kitzhaber, Governor Kitzhaber was in his first term of office and he really put his foot down about all the arts and culture organizations in the state getting organized 
uh, and um, basically he wanted to prevent them from continuing to snipe at the Oregon legislature for more funding. He wanted them to get organized and create um, what became the Oregon Cultural Trust. And the Oregon Cultural Trust divided up their funding, they distribute funds, they collect and distribute funds in three different ways. But one of the ways they distribute funds is through a grant program that's competitive at the state. Another way they distribute funds goes to the, um, the big five, let's say, cultural institutions in preservation, heritage, humanities, and the arts, and then including the Oregon Arts Commission. And then the other way they distribute funding is through the county coalitions. The Chutes Cultural Coalition is one of them. Uh, the tribes have each have one and the counties each have one. And the funding comes down in a formula and then based on, in addition to that, based on population. And our grants have been very modest in the past, I would say. We get about $25,000 a year to distribute to um, qualified applicants in Deschutes County. Recently, however, the Oregon State Legislature, um, in an inspired moment, um, <laughs> decided to take some of the uh, infusion from the CARES Act funding that was coming from the, uh, to mitigate COVID uh, economic impact uh, was coming from the feds through the state and the state decided to allocate uh, about over 20 about 25 million to the Oregon Cultural Trust to then distribute through their coalition mechanism and that was like a fire hose for us you know that's a, a lot of money and it was a, a competitive process that occurred in a period of time that was just you could name in a period of days I mean it was really rapid response was required from applicants. Hey, how, how does that amount of funding, you distributed a million dollars in the community, or roughly close to, how does that compare to what you're normally given from the state in a fiscal year? Well, as I mentioned, we normally get about 25,000. Right. A million does look a little different, and it's <laughs> more than a million, and we have not distributed it yet. We're still waiting for for the paperwork and the contracts. And as you can imagine, uh, the state of Oregon is probably going to be, well, is counting on being um, audited, you know, by the feds for how this money was used. So uh, there are a lot of strictures to how um, we need to get organized in order to distribute it and report on it. Um, so I think that the amount of money that the Deschutes County could have qualified for were it to receive um, its entire distribution. Uh, as I said, it was a very competitive process and not everybody who applied got the full amount they wanted. So we actually have almost $2 million to distribute. Wow. Um, yes, it's a lot. And a press release did go out. I, I haven't seen any news on it yet, but it, we are waiting to get our paperwork, as I said, so we can communicate directly with our grant recipients. It's incredible. It is. How, how did, um, and, and explain, maybe tell listeners a little bit about going back to, I mean, that funding dropped pretty quickly on you guys. And for an organization that prior to being alerted to that funding, 
there wasn't a lot going on here in the arts community with everything being shut down for COVID. What was that like? Uh, well, it was pretty astounding, and <laughs> <laughs> I think. But again, um, the people who sir, were lucky, I think, um, in the talent that we have here, the people who are, have been quietly serving. I've been on the coalition since 2003, which is the year that it first received funding to distribute in this county. And the first amount of money that we could distribute was $3,000. So the fund that we normally distribute grew in 2003 at $3,000 to about 25,000. Uh, the people we have on the committee are um, highly accomplished professionals in their field from the library, from COCC, um, we have a representative from Redmond who, sir, who is part of the, or from part of the, I'm sorry, Redmond Chamber. Um, and the Chamber has been very active in promoting arts in that area. So, and the Historical Society is involved and these people are um, hardworking, trained administrators. So, uh, with the, some leadership on that committee, we were able to really sort through the information pretty quickly and and respond. Um, so we're fortunate. It's great. Um, you've shed a light in past conversations on the fact that Oregon's public funding for the art within the country is pretty low compared to other states. And after living here and trying so hard to boost that funding within your own work. Um, what are your takeaways and maybe explain to listeners like where Oregon kind of sits and how our funding models compare to some states that might do it better? Well, some of our ranking changed during the recession. You know, for a while there, it looked like the uh, California Arts Commission um, was going to be eliminated entirely. So there were some precarious times for, for, for others. Um, I think that funding for the arts in the state has always been strangely difficult to me. You know, I don't understand how a, such a progressive state could be so thin in its um, distribution of money for the arts. Unfortunately, right now at the tip, on the tip of my tongue, I do not have the Oregon Arts Commission's budget. Uh, handy. However, I can tell you that just a few years ago, like a couple years ago, maybe I, I do know that while our legislature was cutting the Oregon Arts Commission budget for by 11%, Alabama was increasing their budget for the arts by 14%. Yeah. Well, there, Alabama's known for being a lot more progressive than Oregon, so that doesn't I, surprise me, Kate. I know. I was right, <laughs> just right up there, a place we all want to admire for that. Um, so I, I can't figure out, for years, and nobody really wants to talk about this, and I make myself, I'm sure, so popular by talking about it as well, but I, I want to impress how low the funding was as compared to the rest of the country. Oregon for many years and might still rank and per capita support for the arts below Guam. <laughs> Another progressive stronghold for the arts. <laughs> oh. Of course, that's per capita. So, you know, it depends on how you slice this. 
Right. But, um, it's, it's interesting. So, and uh, the majority of funding in this state, no surprise, goes to organizations on the other side of the mountains. In my mind, uh, which I've not been able to speak strongly enough, I've not succeeded in this mission, let's just say, yet. <laughs> which is, um, that mission is to take into consideration um, comparing arts organizations on the west side of the Cascades to the east side of the Cascades is there's a lot of unfairness to that. There's no way that the Central Oregon Symphony here is going to be serving the same number of people as the Oregon Symphony. And the grant criteria as written looks at the number of people served mm -hmm. a lot and the capacity of your organization to, to do a lot of things and your ability to raise funds. And um, because we're not as sophisticated over here, there's that word again, <laughs> you know, we don't have the same level of uh, donor um, support as well. So that, another difficulty. But I really think that what I've done when I've served on statewide panels who distribute funding for the arts, I fortunately am in a position to speak up for the significance of cultural organizations on this side of the Cascades. They are significant in relationship to their community. And um, in arts and culture, that includes like libraries and some of these very small communities who are the only ones who are doing a lot of cultural presentations and um, sponsoring music groups and things like that. So for that community, uh, that organization is hugely significant. And yet that significance is not weighed fairly to the just size of organizations on the other side of the Cascades. And there's got to be a fair way to do that and consider the importance of quality. Because we can't just fund junk uh, just because it may be the only thing going on in a community. Isn't it also a self-fulfilling prophecy that if they're not given the funding, they'll never reach the level of sophistication to raise those numbers and become more indoctrinated in the ways you acquire grants, what the, what the process is. And it just becomes less robust if those, I mean, it's, it's, it seems like a catch-22. How do you get that funding here when that's what's needed to elevate people so that they can make a case that they should get the funding? Well, I think that's a um, vicious cycle for sure. And um, that's why I think that because it, it, we cannot compete here, have not been motivated enough to compete, spend, invest the time to do the level of lobbying is done by arts organizations on the west side of the Cascades. They are very sophisticated in their ability to communicate to those who have funding and to elevate the funding that is received to a level of visibility that makes funders very happy. Um, that's why I think that unless we uh, come together as a coalition, if you will, of people who are coming from organizations like the library, like OSU Cascades, like the High Desert Museum, for instance, and some higher level thinkers that can speak forcefully enough, convincingly enough, 
to get an infusion, to get a plan in place that uh, earns uh, funding and is awarded funding that can create um, additional plans and strategies for sustainability to float everybody's boat. Um, I just don't think anything's going to happen because we, what happens with uh, grant funding, you know, let's say somebody gives a big endowment to a that's allocated to the arts. Everybody in the state gets very busy, mostly on the west side, with starting to lobby that foundation about how that money should be divvied up. And it starts out looking like it's going to be fairly distributed. And I just noticed over time it erodes to um, it's that old 1% um, cry that we have, right? There's a higher, there's just the, you know, top 5% or whatever are the ones that get the most of it and can compete um, as those uh, criteria continue to evolve or in our opinion over here, maybe erode uh, in fairness, um, the money continues to go uh, to ones that already have a lot of it. Well, thank you so much, Kate, for coming on. Kate O'Hagan, everybody. This has been Ben Don't Break, hosted by Aaron Schweitzer of The Source Weekly, and I'm Laurel Bronze. Thanks so much for being here.